How would you feel about Nurse Robot or Dr. AI? Now, just to be clear, you won't be hearing I'll be back with your meds just yet. We're a long way off from machine learning fully taking over our healthcare, but artificial intelligence is infiltrating medicine, just like it's writing papers, passing exams, and professing love. We're focusing on AI for our series, Know It All, 1A and Wired's Guide to AI. For this episode, we're looking at artificial intelligence innovation in medicine, both the benefits and the dangers. Dr. Judy Gachoya is a radiologist at Emory University. She runs an AI research lab. The way I structure my project and my students is to pair them together because the computer scientists really need a lot of help learning the medical world. And the medical side doesn't really realize how much They know from a clinical point, but they need help from the computer scientists. So that starts to create these forums of shared communication. So how is AI used in healthcare, and how could it be used? We'll get into those questions and more after the break. I'm Jen White. You're listening to the 1A Podcast, where we get to the heart of the story. Remember to connect with us, download the 1A Vox Pop app, and leave us a message. Let's get into our conversation about AI and healthcare. Joining us is senior editor at Wired, Tom Simonite. Hi, Tom. Welcome. Hi. It's nice to be with you today. Also with us is Lema Nazer. She's an ICU clinical pharmacist and AI researcher at the King Hussein Cancer Center in Amman, Jordan. Lema, welcome. Well, thank you very much. Thank you for having me. Well, as we said, you're a clinical pharmacist and an artificial intelligence researcher. You work with oncology patients. Tell us a little bit about how you're using AI in their care. Um, uh, AI has uh, really expanded significantly over the past years. And uh, um, I would say within all domains, including healthcare. Um, What we're looking at at this stage with cancer patients is trying to see if we can develop prediction models that can help us uh, proactively um, identify the development of adverse reactions or complications. So being a pharmacist, um, the the adverse drug events are certainly one of the important aspects that I look for. Um, And working in an ICU setting, I usually see the kind of the severe complications that result from uh, cancer treatments. Uh, So part of what we're looking at at this stage is trying to see if we can be proactive with our management of of, uh, cancer patients. So rather than saying, you know, well, we'll start everyone on the same chemotherapy or the same treatment, um, and then maybe later on see how that patient's response is, whether it's in terms of safety or in terms of efficacy, is there a mechanism that or a tool that I can use to help me identify those patients that are at higher risk of developing a complication or a higher risk of developing an adverse event and trying to be more proactive in terms of their management. Um, so maybe I'll give a very simple example for that. Uh, for example, you know, diarrhea, for example, is a common complication with some of the cancer treatments. And sometimes it's severe enough to the point that the patient may need to come to the emergency department. It's severe enough that sometimes it requires ICU admission. Um, Is there a way that I can identify those patients early on and maybe identify certain treatment options that I can consider early on so I can either prevent or minimize that complication? So that's kind of part of what we're looking at at this stage. Um, of trying to kind of further enhance the management of our patients. And Lemma, very briefly, what kind of information do you have to get from your patient 
or, or feed to the AI to help it predict whether a patient might have an adverse reaction? Yeah, at this stage, uh, we haven't yet started implementing this in clinical practice because there is so much that goes into it, and it's kind of like easier said than done. Mm-hmm. Um, I think several years ago, we thought AI would be more of a um, faster solution for optimizing patient care, and we're realizing that this, you know, the it's kind of more complex than what we anticipated. But at this point, as we're generating or as we're developing those models, we're trying to capture uh, patient-related information. So just kind of demographics about the patients, characteristics of the, about the patients, uh, what type of chemotherapy are they receiving, how many doses have they received, um, uh, what type of malignancies do they have, and then trying to get the um, AI Um, analytics or the machine learning algorithms to look at certain predictions um, or look at certain patterns within uh, the patient's labs that were taken or certain uh, markers that could kind of give a signal that that patient may be at high risk or low risk. Uh, So it's a combination of factors and trying to kind of see if there's a pattern within that data. Tom, what other ways are we seeing AI come up in healthcare right now? Yeah, as as you mentioned, there are so many opportunities. Um, you know, w- one is, as uh, Lama described there, the sort of huge amount of data that is already being collected in patients' medical charts. Uh, so, you know, so, so much information that, uh, you know, a team of doctors couldn't kind of follow every avenue that's in that data, but there are lots of uh, companies and research projects looking at ways to pull out signals from that data that might, maybe they can help you predict an adverse event, maybe they can help predict that someone is going to um, take a turn for the worst when they're in hospital, for example. Um, there are other, uh, another big area of research for AI and medicine is uh, radiology. So uh, analyzing images um, taken inside the body to maybe spot signs of cancer or uh, a, a blood clot or something like that. Um, there's an interesting company based out here in the Bay Area, which got FDA approval for some software that sits on a CT scanner in an emergency department and uh, it looks for signs of a blockage in a blood vessel in the brain um, that can indicate a stroke. That's a condition where every second, every minute uh, makes a difference as to your chances of survival or or having minimal disability. And the software can, you know, it's not diagnosing a stroke, but it can see evidence for a stroke well enough that it can alert a specialist and and hopefully get that doctor at the patient's side um, just a few minutes faster. What are some of the common misconceptions you hear about artificial intelligence in healthcare, Tom? I I think one of the misconceptions about AI right now across the board and and not just in healthcare is that, you know, we have systems that are ready to to be a doctor (laughs) or, or, you know, are autonomous and and can kind of make their own decisions and and really perform somewhat like a human. What we have today is still exciting, but it's you know not quite what you see in the sci-fi movies. So we can have these narrow systems that can be really good at one particular job. You know, maybe that's spotting signs of eye disease in a picture of your retina or. Um, flagging the risk of an adverse reaction to a medication, as, as Lama was talking about. But, you know, the idea of a multifunctional uh, piece of software that could, could do everything a doctor does, we're not quite there yet. Tom, what ethical questions come up as healthcare workers and, and researchers start to look at AI to aid or, or maybe one day even make some of these critical decisions? 
Yeah, it's a good question. And in some ways, it's not wholly an, a new question because, as you said, you know, this is medicine, so life and death decisions are, are being made here. Um, I guess what we're really talking about with AI is there's sort of another another layer of medical ethics of, of proper medical practice that has to be considered. And so uh, one of the interesting developments in recent years is is that regulators like the Food and Drug Administration in the US have really sort of stepped up and started to take a look at some of the work going on in this area and thinking about how how do you decide whether to approve um, a healthcare algorithm. Um, you know, regulators might be more familiar with approving drugs or medical devices, but now software can really be a key part of someone's treatment and, and make a difference to their condition. Let's add another voice to the conversation. Suchi Saria is an AI professor at Johns Hopkins. She's also the founder and CEO of Bayesian Health. That's a healthcare AI platform. Suchi, welcome. Thank you for having me. Suchi, in the simplest of terms, what's the goal of your AI technology? Very simply, you know, we've gone in the last 10 years from having paper records to digital records. And now that most of the data is digitized from every encounter when you visit a hospital or when you visit a doctor's office, there's all this data that's getting collected on you and how you respond to medications and how your symptoms appear and what your clinical history is and what it allows platforms and systems like Bayesian Health to do is to analyze your record against millions of other patients like you, understand what your uh, progression is going to look like, what you're likely to respond to, what your signs of deterioration may look like, and make it easy for providers to anticipate and forecast and be less reactive. Hmm. So an example of this is in sepsis, I lost my 26-year-old nephew to sepsis. Mm, sepsis is an infection that, uh, you know, if it's sometimes your body can overreact to taming the infection, the process of this reaction could start actually start attacking your organ systems. And, uh, you know, and if it's not contained within a timely fashion, lead your body into shock and leading to death. One in three patients today die of, uh, you know, once they're in a state of severe sepsis septic shock, uh, die. And it's really unfortunate. And we've known, like, one of the, you know, most promising avenues for improving outcomes in a condition like sepsis is early identification. So if there was a way when patients are coming in to the emergency department, you know, we could identify which pay, or, you know, throughout their length of stay in the hospital, if you will, you know, let's say they have an infection, we're able to analyze signs and understand which patient is at risk for deteriorating um, from sepsis. You can come in, treat in a timely way and, you know, completely avoid uh, this bad trajectory of organ failure, septic shock and, and patient death. And so this is an example of the type of problem that Bayesian Health is looking to solve. Tom, what kind of government regulation is there over the use of new AI technology? In some cases, an AI software is considered a medical device, which is something that the FDA has regulated for a long time. Um, and so something has to be approved uh, before it can be used, uh, launched commercially. And, you know, there has to be some evidence that it works um, and does what it's supposed to do. Um, other areas of AI can kind of be in, in gray areas, and maybe Suchi can speak to this a bit more, but some of the algorithms that have been deployed to um, 
send alerts to medical staff, whether that's nurses or doctors, doctors about about conditions like sepsis, have previously not been considered um, regulated. Although that is now beginning to change. Uh, Suchi, what does Bayesian fall under? Is it considered a medical device or something else? Yeah. So the FDA's regulation has evolved over time. Up until October of last year, many clinical condition areas outside of imaging that involved, uh, you know, for example, sepsis was not considered to be regulated medical device. In October, they dropped new guideline that is now moving towards them wanting to regulate the space. And I am very excited as a researcher in this space that we're starting to see more oversight. Um, like Tom referenced there's a number of ways in which as we're deploying this technology, we need to be very responsible to make sure that the AI that's being used is very robust. So as it goes from one site to another, or for example, we released these studies last year that showed really exciting results in sepsis. But some of the challenges we had to tackle was things like in the middle of this three-year study, COVID happened. And these were whole new patient populations that the platform had never seen before and had to adapt. Similarly, the patients coming to the hospital changed over that period of time because of the pandemic. Physician practices changed, and we need platforms and, uh, that can adapt to these differences in practice, and we need oversight committees and rules to be able to ensure that anything that is getting deployed is adhering to the highest standards. We got this question from Jay who emails, it's easy to assume that a computer knows what it's doing, but an algorithm will have the same biases as the people who made them. How transparent are these algorithms? How easy is it to update them when we find errors? And how secure are they against hacking? So let's break that down into three parts, Suji. The first being, how transparent are the algorithms you're building? Yeah, fantastic question. So just stepping back in my own research, we've done a fair amount of research on this notion of how do you build co-pilots for clinicians or assistants for physicians and nurses. And a good assistant is one where the two together do way better than individually, right? So how do you build the right kind of augmentative intelligence? And in doing so, these are exactly the questions you have to think about, which is, you know, when what is the algorithm very good at relative to what the clinician is good at? How do you complement the strengths and weaknesses? So, for example, you know, um, can the in order for the physician or the care team to be able to collaborate well with the software, you need to be able to introduce a collaboration language, which means be transparent. So when the algorithm in our case for Bayesian, when we flag a patient, we tell the clinician why we scan records from this encounter, past encounters, analyze what is it that's getting the algorithm to point pinpoint and display a fair amount of context that makes it really, really easy for the physician to understand why the algorithm thought what it thought. And now in response, they don't have to agree. They can look at the data, very quickly analyze data that otherwise they would require 20 clicks through the electronic health record, probably wouldn't even have the time to look at it. Now they can see it all very quickly, understand why it was there, and then make a decision. And they can agree or disagree. If they disagree, that's very helpful data because for future, uh, you know, times we use that data to learn from it. And, you know, sometimes the physician can be wrong. They disagreed, but turns out this physician, this patient was indeed going to decline. And that becomes a very beautiful learning story, right? Because now they can resurface that case, see how they thought otherwise, the algorithm thought differently, 
And there's an opportunity to improve as a team. I want to get to the second part of Jay's question, which is how easy is it to update the technology when you find errors? So one of the very interesting things is, you know, as I've worked in with uh, Hopkins, as a, you know, I've worked alongside physicians and uh, build systems uh, over the last 12 years in many different service lines, it's much, much harder to change human behavior than it is to change and evolve and improve algorithmic behavior. Algorithms don't have emotions. They're mostly there to optimize against whatever objective that we've designed it to do. So in this scenario, when we see, for example, there are certain patient subpopulations where it's performing poorly. Like Tom said, we can now start to collect more data in those patient subpopulations and improve the learning algorithm's performance to see how we can learn indicators specific to that subgroup. So the act of improving the algorithm is actually much, much, you know, it's, it's algorithmic, it's straightforward, much more straightforward than it is changing human behavior. On the flip side, though, we do have to be careful every time we do a new release, we have to make sure it's gone through end-to-end testing, deep understanding of how behavior has changed. Do we understand how it's performing in subgroups? Has it been tested for, you know, quality and bias? All of the kinds of things we would do when releasing, you know, safety-critical software. And the last part to that question, Suchi, how secure is this technology against hacking? We, um, this technology is no, the security uh, concerns and something like this is no different from what it would be for any other device that would be connected to the internet. So the security piece of it is very, very similar and we would borrow best practices from what exists elsewhere in, uh, in medical device technology. We got this question from Siobhan, who asks, can AI help reduce racial disparities like maternal mortality rates that are often the result of implicit bias by healthcare professionals? And Tom, I want to hear from you on this first. We know artificial intelligence tools like the people who make them can discriminate against certain people. How big of a problem has that been as we're exploring the use of AI in in medicine? Um, I I don't know whether we can necessarily say that it's sort of been a problem sort of out in medical care um, that AI tools have had those problems, but it's certainly um, cropped up in research. And um, there are a reason, there are a number of reasons, but it often comes down to the data that's used to train these systems. Um, so a lot of cutting edge AI healthcare research is associated with the leading uh, academic institutions in the US. And many of those happen to be in places that are maybe not so diverse. And so one problem that researchers have ran into is that the best and biggest research data sets that are available to to test and train algorithms may not be representative of every part of the country. And and so what can happen is if you train an algorithm to um, analyze medical charts or medical images using data from one... um, place which has a particular kind of uh, mix of different backgrounds and socioeconomic conditions, um, the the kind of the patterns um, from the population will sort of be baked into that algorithm. And then when you uh, ask it to look at uh, data from a, a place with a different mixture of people and socioeconomic conditions, uh, it may not be so accurate. And so uh, figuring out how to look for um skew like that and and maybe correct for it or, or figure out how you make the call um, that an algorithm is ready to be used in different populations 
um, is a very active area of research. Suchi, how are you working to ensure bias isn't built into your platform? Yeah, so a number of things. Um, first thing you do is to make sure you're measuring bias, because if you, you can't improve what you can't measure. So measuring bias means understanding, you know, within certain subgroups, like minority populations or older females, are we getting, are they getting guideline adherent care? There's a very beautiful study in 20 plus hospitals that was done. What they found was in 20 hospitals, black patients were less likely to receive guideline adherent care for a number of reasons. So here's where objective algorithms can come in, quantify data and make it easy to identify. But we want to be able to make sure then that they're performant in these subgroups. In the scenarios where they're not performant, then you have a number of strategies you can employ for making them more performant. But what you don't want to do is to do something very naive, like just try to mimic what is already happening. When you try to mimic what's already happening, you basically are going to reinforce human bias and you want to avoid that. Tom, as you continue reporting on this subject, what are you watching for? Um, I'm very interested in um, seeing examples of AI applications really changing healthcare delivery in places with fewer resources in the world. So uh, one example is a project Google is doing, um, deploying software that can analyze images of people's eyes in a clinic uh, in uh, low-resource parts of the world. And the idea is there to kind of provide expertise that is not available otherwise because there are not enough specialists. That's Tom Simonite. He's a senior editor at Wired. Also with us, Suchi Saria. She's an AI professor at Johns Hopkins and founder and CEO of Bayesian Health, a healthcare AI platform. Thanks to you both. Coming up, we meet a researcher whose AI work has been funded by the National Institutes of Health. That's just ahead. Let's get back to our discussion about AI and healthcare by adding another voice to the conversation. Dr. Azra Bahorak is the Senior Associate Dean of Research Affairs at the University of Florida's College of Medicine. Azra, welcome to the program. Thank you so much. And I still work as nephrologist intensivist. Oh, wonderful. Thank you for letting us know. Let's turn to our voicemail box. Here's the message we got. So, Jen, some of my concerns about AI is that it will always need human monitoring because... I think it will always have the propensity to go off the rails and to create problems that it cannot itself solve. So I think AI is here to stay, but as a partnership. We also got this message from Heidi, who's a family doctor. I would like AI to reduce administrative burden and free up my time with patients. I started my career with paper charts and saw the evolution of electronic health records. Many different health systems do not speak to each other, so when a patient transfers from place to place, data gets lost. Sometimes 300 to 600 pages of paper records come in from their previous doctors. I spend hours after work thumbing through these, hoping not to miss anything. Dr. Behorak, you've been awarded several grants as a part of an initiative by the National Institutes of Health called Bridge to AI. Now, one of the projects you're working on uses artificial intelligence to track the movements of patients in critical care units. Why is that a helpful tool? Well, first of all, I really want to echo the messages you just heard. You know, I started as a physician and I am still thinking as a doctor, as somebody who provides care. And I think that's the really important 
thing to take from this conversation that we start with questions and questions can only be asked by patients and those who are involved in delivering care, physicians, nurses, and others. And AI is a tool. And I started by, you know, being working in ICU. I'm intensivist. I work in a surgical ICU. I take care of the patients after big surgery, after trauma. And all of my research really started at the bedside asking how we can use the data we collect during our routine care to better take care of our patients, to overcome administrative burden, to overcome the fact that we often don't have enough human resources when we deliver care. So one of our projects is exactly focused on understanding how we can use data collected uh, around the patients uh, undergoing surgery to under, uh, to uh, to to predict complications that may happen after the surgery. And and we have shown that such tools can be built and can actually be deployed, but require really huge team, not only of the doctors and engineers, but also IT specialists and a lot of investment in hospital. Well, we heard from Suchi Saria, whose AI tech deals with analyzing data. Another one of your research projects uses data in a similar way. You say that AI technology is good at creating a, quote, medical suitcase of information. What is a medical suitcase of information and why is it helpful? So I always think about that, you know, when you come as a patient to to a doctor, you already have a lot of history created. You have a digital footprint in the medical system. And hopefully we will be able to synchronize all of these data signatures that you may have over different systems once we put them all together. But the idea is that you will be able perhaps one day just create your own suitcase by taking all of these data that you left as a footprint and in a in a, use AI to represent them in a way that can be used by other algorithms or by your physicians down the road to integrate the new data created during your medical visit or your another uh, hospitalization and then use that to the benefit of providing you better, more personalized care. We got this message from Alex, who's also a family doctor. They say, in my field, clinical decisions have to be made in terms of the cultural, religious, and other personal values of each patient. A computer algorithm simply cannot come close to the ability to personalize and apply clinical research data to the complexity of people's lives, at least for the foreseeable future. Lama, I'd love to hear your response to that uh, message from from Alex and, and where you see I suppose, the limitations of this technology as it is right now? Yeah, I think that's a great question because this is the part that we're kind of struggling with in terms of how we apply AI. Uh, There's certainly so much potential for AI to improve the quality of care that we're giving to our patients and so much potential in terms of of, uh, um, providing more efficient and more um, advanced potentially more advanced care for our patients, but the the uh, potential uh, bias um, and the potential, um, uh, I would say, social determinants of health um, and social uh, demographics of patients are difficult to kind of incorporate within the model to produce a one that's generalizable to to all patients and that takes into account all of those factors. Um, And we've actually seen that with several cases where models that have actually been implemented in practice, when they were validated down the line, there were certain aspects of health disparities that were identified. Uh, Part of it is because there are some of the factors, as was mentioned by the question, there are some of the factors that may not be easily... um, um, 
analyzed or interpreted or captured within that algorithm. And there are other factors related to the fact that we have underrepresented populations and those underrepresented populations will not make it to the algorithm because the algorithm pulls the data from patients. And if those patients are underrepresented, then those patients don't make it to the final algorithm or the final product. So there are certainly a lot of issues that we're trying to learn from AI in terms of how we incorporate those um, elements and how we have a more um, uh, inclusive algorithm so that we're producing one that's more generalizable to all our patients. Mm-hmm. Dr. Behorak, I'd love to hear your thoughts as well about the, the limitations of the technology as it currently exists and, and whether you think there will always have to be some human touch involved with care. Well, absolutely. Uh, I agree with uh, with whatever, with everything what was said. You know, AI is a tool, just like we have a blood test and other biological tests, and we are developing all these other tools. AI will be one of the tools and one of the partners in our clinical decision-making. I always say the patients come to hospital to meet his or her doctor. He doesn't come to meet AI algorithm. And, you know, the contract, the trust is between patient and, uh, patient and physician, and that is a really sacred institution at least for me. And everything we do is is there to serve our patients and allow us to provide the best quality of care. For that reason, I think that the, uh, the physicians and the patients need to be in the center of this dialogue and this conversation about AI because the questions needs to be, the right questions need to be asked. And those questions, the answers to those questions need to be rigorously tested. And I uh, don't think that... Um, that uh, so a lot of the thing that we can do at this point is focus on on um, processes of care of autom- or not automation or facilitation of certain things that can be done without ever uh, exposing patients or physicians to some risk of bias. As example, we have one of our studies focused on how we can help nurses use all the things we monitor at the bedside, like your blood pressure, your heart rate, that come on a, in a continuous streams and are not really used or permanently recorded in your medical record, how we can use AI to actually analyze those signals and send them in some synthesized form for the nurses to simplify their delivery of care. Those kind of tools actually may be the first thing to attack because they might be easier to implement, test, develop, and validate. Well, we also know that American medicine is is often criticized for being reactionary rather than preventative. And Dr. Bahorek, how do you think AI might help with that dynamic? I think that's a one another area that we can perhaps utilize this power of, of the data that we did not have up 10 years ago. We have all kinds of streams of data that in the amount of intensity and density that we've never had before and that human brain cannot process. That ability to process such a dense data is certainly going to help us look for the features and small uh, clues or cues that can together integrate with the human observation can help us actually anticipate which patient uh, at risk for developing complications where they are in hospital or developing some other disease in the near future, and then really focused on prevention. Again, a lot of these things are still, 
out there for uh, testing in terms what interventions are available for us once we detect perhaps patient at risk for certain complications and are not simple to answer. Because as Dr. Su uh, Dr. Suchi said before, we already have a lot of tools and if I have a very hard time using those tools and implementing protocols that exist. So this is more than just the AI question. This is overall question of changing the culture of reactive to preventive and how we can put an entire frontier of the different type of scientists and specialists working on these questions together. Dr. Bohorek, as this technology continues to be developed, you think it's important that discoveries in healthcare AI are shared across different communities. Why is that important? I think that's a critical because uh, without spreading uh, these tools all over uh, for everyone, I think it's going to be impossible really to ask right questions and provide the right answers. And one of the uh, one of the funding that we have for Bridge from the Bridge to AI is actually to put together open source large data sets of almost one hundred thousand records of, of ICU patients, critically critically ill patients. Uh, across the America, 15 academic centers, very different geographic locations with very wide distribution of different uh, group of patients, different type of diagnosis that provides us to have enough diversity and use these data sets. But more importantly, around these data sets, creating modules where we can actually develop shared computational tools, develop standards so we can have systems talk to each other, different devices, different type of data, and eventually develop educational modules for both workforce and for our patients. And that's one of big passion of mine. Uh, I think the changes in front of us, AI is a partner to stay. And we as a group, uh, both as a patient and both as a healthcare providers need to be ready. We need to become proficient. We need to, some of us needs to become masters. And we have invest, uh, invested quite a lot in, a, we call it AI passport program for healthcare, for healthcare providers, but also programs for the, uh, through the citizen scientist program for our patients, training them about this technology, about how to assess its safety, but also how to explore the potentials and how to ask new questions. That's Dr. Azra Bahorak. She's the Senior Associate Dean of Research Affairs at the University of Florida's College of Medicine. Also with us, Lema Nazir, an ICU clinical pharmacist and AI researcher at King Hussein Cancer Center in Amman, Jordan. Thanks to you both. Today's producer was Jorhelina Mana Rea. This program comes to you from WAMU, part of American University in Washington, distributed by NPR. I'm Jen White. Thanks for listening. We'll talk more soon. This is 1A.